Hey, before we get into this episode, I've got a favor to ask of you. We're starting a new segment on In Context called Ask Dr. E, and I've got a promo that I want you to listen to, so check it out. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, Dad. Tana. Hey, okay, I've been thinking about in context, and I had an idea that I want to run past you. So, you know how all of my friends, lots of your friends, love to pick your brain about, like, random theological questions or wondering what a Bible verse means? Okay, what if we tried a call-in show where our listeners can actually call in and leave you a voicemail with their questions. And then we'll play their questions and you can answer them in the studio. And I don't know, you know how your students at Moody Bible Institute used to call you Dr. E? Maybe we call it like, Ask Dr. E. Okay, I don't know, think about it, get back to me, bye. Okay friends, now is your chance. How many times have you been reading in your Bible and thought, what on earth does that mean? Or maybe you've grappled with some theological concepts like predestination, the Trinity, or how do slaves, women, and homosexuality change from Old Testament to New Testament today? Or I don't know, but whatever it is that you've been pondering, maybe you've thought, I wish I could ask Michael Easley what he thinks about this. Well, now is the time you can ask Dr. E. Seriously, call us. Call us at 615 615- 281-9694. Next time you're reading your Bible in the morning, I don't care if it's 5 a.m., call us and leave a voicemail. This is a phone line set up specifically for this. A human is not going to answer your call. You are not going to wake anyone up day or night. A voicemail will pick up. So next time you're wondering, what does this mean? Big question, small question. We want to hear it. 615-281-9694. Call us, leave a voicemail, and Michael will answer your question on the show. And if you're just too shy to call, you can always send us an email at question at michaelincontext.com. But seriously, call us, 615-281-9694. I think this is going to be a blast but we need your help. You've got to call in with your questions. Save it in your phone, write it on a sticky note, and keep it in your Bible. Ask Dr. E, 615-281-9694. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Any of you play football growing up? Any of you had kids that play football growing up? Um, I still remember in, in junior high when I first started playing football, we would go, and of course you would have the two-a-days in Texas summers. It was so joyful getting up as a kid early morning, 6 o'clock, go out there to sweat. And uh, we would do exercises and calisthenics and weight training, and then we'd start running. And the, the basic equipment, you started out with cleats. <clears throat> you just had your cleats, your shorts, your T-shirt. And then after a few I don't know if it was a couple of weeks or whatever, you were fitted with a helmet and shoulder pads. And that was a big deal. They brought a trainer in, they brought a little group in, and they would fit you, and they would measure you and put these different cushions. Of course, it's a lot more sophisticated now than in that day. It was pretty simple. You had like three sizes. But uh, they would fit you, and then after you got them on, it was kind of fun. The coach would come over one by one, and he would talk to us, and he would look at Jerry Tolaferro. He'd look you in the eye, and he goes, now, I'm going to hit you. Not hard, but I'm going to hit you because I want to show you what this helmet and shoulder pad will do for you. And he hit us on the shoulder pads. See, it doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt. doesn't hurt. You know, he's banging your shoulder pads. And then he said, I'm going to hit you on the helmet. And he hit us on the head. Not abusively, but he was trying to explain to us this equipment is going to arm you to do your job. 
And he wanted to give us courage that when we had those shoulder pads and helmets on, we could do things that weren't going to hurt us that we couldn't do uh, without that equipment. And so then, of course, we were trained with that equipment. And then little by little, you got the thigh pads and the pants. Everything, would, little by little, you'd piece it together like armor. And by the end of your two-a-days and training when you had your first scrimmages, you were accustomed to that rigging. And you had to get used to it. It couldn't be something you had for the first time. Um, when we face suffering, we're going to see tonight in this passage two, two subjects, but they do tie together. It's how we face suffering and how we fervently love other people. And they do connect. But first of all, what Peter's going to talk about is being armed for such a battle to face suffering. Uh, let's tie this back to chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, where we read in part, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And the thesis we have so far to this point is, if you're going to suffer, suffer for righteousness. Don't suffer for stupidity. If you're going to suffer, suffer the way Christ suffered. That's the big message of the letter of 1 Peter. Let's look at chapter 4, the first three verses to begin with, facing suffering head on. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Uh, Peter cuts to the chase right away, and what he's going to say summarily is the way you suffer is with, is with a Christ-like attitude. That's, that's the, the high-level piece of theology. You and I suffer the way Christ suffered. That's the big idea. Arm yourselves is a military term. It's not used a lot, but we have lots of military terms in the New Testament. This is not an uncommon thing for the first century ear. The idea was a weaponry. You're to arm yourself like the shoulder pads and helmets. You have to be well equipped with this gear to know how to use it when the time comes. The only time the term is used in the New Testament here is in 1 Peter 4, and it ties back to other themes Peter mentions in chapter 2, 11. Uh, fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. So you and I want to be armed, a posture of preparedness. It's, it's a little depressing in a sense. Be ready for suffering. You know, be ready to be hit. And I can still remember on that line, whether it was scrimmaging, most of, most of the guys were running and catching and doing all sorts of fun, exotic things. Most of my practice was pushing a sled. I had a big assistant coach who sat on the sled, and he would yell at me, hit it, hit it, head up, head down, shoulder in, shoulder out. I mean, he would just bark at me, and I'd push the thing down the field and all the way back in. In fact, when everybody else was going to the locker room, I got the joy of pushing the sled literally back into the little barn where it was stored for the next morning. I hated that sled. They would take a jersey of the opposing quarterback number, let's say it was number 13 on the team, and they would put it over the sled pad so I was hitting you know, number 13 that whole week getting for the guy. Just a joyful experience. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, your back problems and neck problems, your shoulder problems. You're in a posture for hitting that sled. You and I have to be in a posture that suffering is going to come. That's the message. But it's not just this, you know, existential, you're going to suffer, get used to it. It's as Christ suffered in the flesh. It's a reminder, Marshall writes, by suffering, Christ showed us his opposition to sinful living. Now, Christ was tempted. We don't, I think we have this picture of Jesus where he was immune to temptation completely, and that's sort of this, one of these pieces of theology we'll never reconcile. But he's tempted in every way. He's mocked, he's scourged, he's ridiculed, he's stoned. They try to stone him, they try to kill him, they run him out of town, and he's human, fully human. The way he handled suffering is what Peter's telling us. He didn't sin. He didn't capitulate. 
He didn't overreach. He didn't do what something the Father didn't allow him to do. He only did what the Father told him to do, and he willfully suffered. So you and I identify with Christ in that when Christ suffered, we looked at his attitude. We looked at his actions. He was armed. He was prepared for that. Now, for you and me, when we suffer, it's an interesting parallel Peter is bringing out here. The temptation is to fall into sin. It makes sense with just a little contemplation, but at first blush it seems like a head-scratcher. No longer for the lusts of men. You're going to suffer differently now than Christ than you would suffer if you were in Christ, but for the will of God, the conforming image. Now Peter's going to list six sins, and I'm going to argue that they go from a general, uh, sort, sort of a rather specific to an amalgamation of an avalanche, the way he's going to list these. First one is sensuality. I won't spend a lot of time on each of these, but just a little definition. Uh, you might use the word licentiousness, a lack of self-restraint, an abandonment. Uh, in my decades, it was, if it, if it feels good, do it. Uh, now, in our current culture, it's this is the way I'm made. This is my identity. This is what I want to do. This is who I am. And that language shrouds this idea of sensuality you don't have to look any further than our current culture. Lusts is a longing or a craving for something. And specifically in the New Testament, it can be a pretty broad term you, you, word, but it has to do with cravings of the flesh. Um, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. I often refer to those as money, sex, and power. You've heard me say about the three umbrellas of sin. Money, sex, and power. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. Most of us have a, have a propensity to one, some, some overlap, obviously we all do, but this longing or craving, and it stands in opposition to a relationship with Christ. When we long and crave for these lusts, we're not aligning ourselves with Christ. Thirdly, drunkenness. It, the word drunkenness can be used in the New Testament, but this is the only time this word shows up in our New Testament. It's a fun word in its lexical background. The word oinos is wine in Greek, and then there's this word you'll never hear anywhere, but it it's, um, basically means bubbling or gossip. So the two words are stuck together, wine and to the point of gossip or bubbling. So you can go first to drunk and they're kind of sloppy and they're talking about everything and no restraints. It's a good picture of being intoxicated. Fourth is carousing. This, again, is a very hard word to bring into English. We've talked a number of times in the study about you can't always translate a simple concept from Greek into English or Hebrew to English or any language for that matter. And so some of your English Bibles will use different words. Um, the, the word is sort of an um, uh, uh, amalgamation of it implies a debauchery. It implies an overindulgence. Bacchus was a god of wine, and they would drink to the god of wine. And that would be sort of this carousing. The next word, drinking parties, has a lot of similarities, but I'm going to suggest it takes it to the next level. Because first of all, when we're starting to get drunk and intoxicated, carousing, now we're going to, it becomes a party. It becomes an orgy. And then the last one is abominable idolatries or lawless idolatries, where image worship comes into play. Uh, it's very possible during Peter's writings, Diosthenes was a god that they would worship uh, from an idolatrous form. We can go back to the um, Old Testament time when you had the gods of Molech and Chemosh. If you go to Corinth, you'll see Aphrodite, you'll see Diana, you'll see these uh, idols. They worship figurines. And it seems a far fetch for us. I can't, I didn't look up a movie per se, but I, I've got pictures in my head of old movies that cast Romans laying around in all their garb, drinking out of goblets and cheering the different gods and licentiousness going on. So if you look at the six sins, what he's saying is this is the way the Gentiles view life sensuality, lust, drunkenness, uh, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. So it's a progression that goes downhill. This kind of temptation illustrates what they came from. When you face suffering, your temptation will be to make excuses for yourself. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the boastful part of life. And Peter is reminding them, you're saved, you're forgiven, you have a new identity. Peter underscores the changed life is going to surprise 
your so-called friends, the Gentiles, is a broad-stroke term. Listen to the way I, Howard Marshall, explains this section. The flouting of public decency clearly shows the natural human consciousness of going too far. But by what criteria, he asks, are these limits fixed? Of course, God's desire is for his creatures to enjoy the blessings that he created for them. What is wrong is when selfish indulgence and sinful indulgence of these desires occurs. This sin condemns us when we indulge despite the consequences of other people, despite the spiritual cost. Worldly behavior in general consists of self-indulgence of any kind at the cost of others. Now, I would add something, he not that he omits it, but he doesn't address it. I would add this notion of sin that hurts others is lost because we've, we've got this nomenclature, and you've heard people say it, I'm not hurting anyone else. If I'm into pornography, if I'm abusing prescription drugs, if I'm drinking too much, if I'm, you know, if, if I'm having a consensual affair with a person and neither of us are married and we agree to this affair, I mean, that doesn't hurt anyone. I find it, I, I hate to modify the word ironic, but I find it richly ironic that we have to justify a behavior which is self-condemning. If I have to say it's okay for me to do this, it doesn't hurt anyone. By implication, what I'm saying is I know it hurts someone, so I have to just, does that make sense? I have to justify the nature of saying this doesn't hurt anybody. You're automatically exposed. I'm just being true to myself, automatically exposed. For the believer, we have a line that's, is it honoring Christ? That's hard in a culture that worships tolerance and love and can't we all just respect each other? I'm not hurting anyone. Well, God's judgment is right on the heels of this passage in verse 4. In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them. What a great expression. You do not run with them to the same excess of dissipation. Uh, when we first moved to this area, I remember uh, one of our kids going down to uh, 30A with the spring break stuff and uh, the report of just basically licentiousness. Uh, some friends of ours, kids, went to Bonnaroo. And I'm not saying you should or shouldn't go to Bonnaroo, but just the rampant licentiousness. And when I read that phrase, you don't, they're surprised if you don't run with them in the same direction. Why would you go down there and then hang out with all your friends from the area and not do what they do? What are you here for? It's, it's just, just I mean, the Bible isn't old and antiquated. Human nature hasn't changed. In all this, they're surprised you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This indeterminate cultural voices, this amalgam of if it feels good, do it. This is who I am. Everyone else is doing it. We're all running together. Um, this is as applicable as it gets for the believer in Christ. You and I may endure suffering for views we hold, positions we take, opinions we have. We can be called hateful. We can be called intolerant. We can be called bigoted. And that's, you've heard me say this before, can you, can you state your position and smile? It may seem silly. I think it's really important. I'm not always good at it. But can you state your position and smile. Because the moment you're combative or angry, which is easy to fall into, uh, we, we lose all the ground. You don't have to be a, an apologetic expert, but um, we're living in a weird time. We may endure suffering at the hand of the culture. Some of the stuff that we read in the news is just maddening. This thing in California, and I've read enough about it to know I don't know what I don't know, but whether the Bible's going to be a banned book it would be very interesting to see if and how they can enforce this because then you got to ban the Quran. You're going to have to. You can't do one and not the other. Well, maybe you could in California. Those from California could speak to that. It's like you can't make this stuff up. Bake the cake, one would argue. Well, I'm, I'm not that baker. The 
man or woman's conscience. I don't know if, if they think baking a cake for X versus Y is, you know, they can't do that. I mean, goodness, find another baker. No, we're going to make an issue of it. It's a crazy time. It's a crazy time. And we feel like we're being force-fed, but we want to be loving and kind. This passage is a little chilling. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But they will give an account. The future is already accomplished in the gospel. This is one of the fun parts and the reason I think so many Christians love in the science fiction. Science fiction isn't just simply this made-up stuff. Science fiction is a storyboard. It's, it's, I'll just clue you in. Science fiction is just westerns in outer space. That's all it is. It's just a western in outer space. There's good guys and bad guys and guys that play both sides and evil people coming from someplace you don't know where they are. And they come, you know, It's the same scenario. Nothing's changed. Stories are all the same. But the reason we're intrigued by it is because this sense of um, there's a right and wrong out there and we don't know exactly what we're facing, but the gospel is accomplished. And science fiction tells us that the end is already in here. Interstellar was a remarkable film with at least six character arcs that did what no other film had done, to my knowledge, before, because they intersected time along with the character arcs. Because time was hundreds of years over here, and it was an hour over there. Remember, if you saw the movie? The ending was terrible, but it was a good film. Uh, but the notion was, the way we view things, the gospel is accomplished. Am I making any sense for that? I sound like a, I'm a lunatic right now. We're hoping when we die, we go to heaven. It's done. It's fait complete. It's finished. And this to me is encouraging as I'm saying this passage is the, the, you know, one of the fellowship songs we used to sing, our trouble here cannot compare to what we have to gain. A great line, a great line. Yet we're so focused on the here and now and when we're hurt and we're dealing with cancer and loss and injury and lawsuits and all the things that we're going to go through as human beings, but they will give an account. This is not, uh, let me give you three points just as a digression here as I'm convicted by this passage. Number one, it's not a license to berate people that hold different views or who are blind in their sin. And even to say blind in their sin will probably get me in trouble one day. But I think you know what I mean by that. It's not a license to beat up on people culturally. Um, they're lost. Secondly, it's a good reminder the gospel transforms. The nature of the gospel is we were once dead and now we're alive. We were blind and now we see. We were lame and now we walk. All of the seven I am miracles demonstrate what we once were and what we will be. Uh, every miracle Jesus performed was an illustration of nature and supernatural, calming the storm. We're too much of us, we're caught in sin and storm. No, he just calms the storm. He can walk on water, he can defeat these things. The gospel transforms. And thirdly, a deluded, sin-filled society will face a holy God. And that, to me, is chilling. Uh, to envision the prospect of those who hate and shake their fist at not just Christians or the church or the Bible, but God. We're all going to hell in a handbasket. No one's any better than anyone. We're all deserving of hell. The fact that we're saved is uh, a mystery that we'll never understand. Maybe even in glory, we'll be confined to that mystery of why did he love us? Well, he loved all. He died for all. In my view of theology, he, only a few respond. And the few who respond to him by faith are forgiven. And uh, yet those who do not face a chilling prospect of not just an eternal separation from Christ, but I believe in a literal hell that the Scripture teaches. So when you and I face suffering... Uh, these things. The attitude of Christ was he endured the cross. He endured the shame for something that was eternal. And that's a hard thing when we live so horizontally in the here and now. I agree. Well, secondly, then Peter moves to this fervency in love. Fervency in love, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a gift, 
employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength of which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You perhaps heard of the doctrine of eminence or the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Eminence means it could happen at any moment. I have a really bad theological joke. I'm sure I've shared it here before that I believe in the imminent return of Jesus, just not in my lifetime. I think most Christians believe he's, he could come morning, noon, and maybe soon he's coming again. Some of us sang that song. Uh, it could, but we don't live that way. The apostles from the upper room discourse in John to Acts 1.8 to Acts 2 Pentecost, I think they believed he was coming back in their lifetime. If you, were, if you were around in uh, Act, during Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when 3,000 people come to Christ, the Holy Spirit fulfills the Jeremiah unilateral covenant of pouring out His Spirit on its people. If you were alive that day, I would have thought, man, this is it. He's coming back. Because this was the biggest thing they'd ever seen. And Peter, much later writing with this he's coming again kind of theology, um, at the end of all things is near, he writes. Now, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole of and different ends of time. I don't think that's the point of Peter's letter. In fact, it's not the point of his letter. What he is saying here is that because the end is near, there are a couple things you need to keep in mind. Uh, increased persecution is going to happen. There are all kinds of challenges. Again, some of you are better historians than me. Uh, when you think back on World War II, you think back across the persecuted church around the world, the Middle East, uh, there were many times we could say, this must be it. He should be coming now because his church is being persecuted and it can't get any worse than that. And that's when Christ is going to return and the schemes all fail. Um, so we don't know when. I love when Christ says that, you know, no one knows the time or the day. So when anybody predicts him, you know, for a fact, that's not the day. Because if someone said it was a day, it's not the day because he's going to come on his own schedule. Only the Father knows that. We could argue the benefits of living under the doctrine of eminency. That if I really wake up in the morning and say, okay, this could be it. How am I going to live if this is my last day? If Christ comes today, what would I do? I, I always have this tug of war, and I've done this at funerals, and I don't mean to be you know, guilt and shame oriented, but I'll present the gospel at a funeral because, and I use this same line whenever I officiate a funeral, at the end of it I say every one of us will be a central figure at a funeral, a service like this one day, and if the casket's there, all the better, I point to it. And then I say the day to come to terms with that is not t that day, but today. Is you might be in a box tomorrow. Another cheery Michael Easley thought. You might be in a box tomorrow. Hey, that's a cheery thought for me because I won't be here. There'll be a suit of clothes in that box. It won't be me. But the idea that we're living imminently, uh, I don't know. Some of you are probably better at this than me. I think about the day. I think about the week. I think about the appointment counter. I think about my kids, my grandkids. I think about stuff, planning my retirement, planning, you know, for ahead, planning for our kids' futures, all the things we get. You know, some of you are going to college, grad school, second, second career, whatever it is, you know, our next gig. I get all that. But once in a while, can we elevate? This isn't just about that. And that's where I think Peter's going to go in this, I believe, he does go. Now, the excursus here of the end times is not the point. Verse 7, the point is prayer, and it's easy to miss. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. That strikes me. That's kind of a new thought in the letter that he is writing. Peter writes Sound judgment and sobriety are needed for prayer. Boy, that's an understatement. Prayer is discipline. Prayer is relationship. Prayer is not a shopping list. Um, I think one of the reasons we fail at prayer is because we have the wrong idea of prayer. Um, Cindy and I, for many, many years, have, have had small groups in our homes, and we've, on our own spiritual lives and 
devotional rigors. We struggle with prayer, and sometimes we do real well in it. She does a lot better than me, generally speaking. This has been a tool that we both love. It's, a, it's called, it's a, kind of a weird title, Handbook to Prayer. Not the Handbook of Prayer, Handbook to Prayer. Uh, it's a brilliant book by Ken Boa, B-O-A. And what he does in here, it's a 90-day prayer book, so month one, day one, and so forth. And it's scripture that he's translated. Um, he happened to go to a seminary I kind of like. Uh, but he translates scripture, and then after, so the first one's adoration, and then he'll, after the scripture you read, he'll say, pause to express your thoughts of praise and worship based on what you just read. And then the next one's confession, and they'll have a psalm or whatever. And he, he spent a ton of time sewing this together. We've gone through it so many times, I can't tell you. But I am always shocked, even with one day, the theme that he can tie together with a number of different passages. And then he'll go to the section called Renewal. And just for example, may I be a faithful person who fears God, Nehemiah 7.2. I have hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, may I strive always to keep my conscience blameless before God and men, Acts 24, 15, 16. Pause to add your prayers on personal renewal. So he, he seasons you with a passage that's talking about that. and Oh, and you might just pray that passage back to God. Anyway, it, you can do it in five minutes, you can do it in 30 minutes. It just depends on what strikes you. And one thing I would absolve you of, if I could, is not being guilty if you don't pray long enough. Because prayer is the discipline and prayer is a relationship. I think even the, the aspect of answers to prayer can be confusing at best, misleading at worst. He may not answer prayer. Like Gert Bahana uh, is a, a, a storied individual. Anyway, but she came to Christ late in life and was a fascinating woman. And she made this legendary comment, I don't know what prayer is, I just know that prayer is. I like it. The Mennonites say, pray until you've prayed. I don't know what in the world that means but I like it. Pray until you've prayed. It's a relationship. It's a discipline. I think it is the lost art for most Christians. Um, and I, I do think it seems to come home as we're seniors. I think the older you get, the more you understand prayer. I don't understand all I know. Prof. Hendricks often said our, our need is not partial, it's total. And until we understand that, we don't have a dependence on prayer. Our need is not partial, it's total. The emphasis of above all stands out in the passage. Verse 7, to the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love. So we move from prayer now to the second thing, and he modifies it above all. Love is modified, keeping fervent. It's an interesting expression, an earnest devotion to something. It's not a feeling, by the way. And this is probably one of the most misunderstood concepts in Christianity is love. Love is ethical, not emotional. I, I, I struggle with that in my own life. Love is enduring, it's not convenient. I don't love Cindy because I always have these you know, emotions that sustain me in our 39 years of marriage, whatever it's coming up on. That's not, I love her because I made vows of commitment. Yes, I have feel, tremendous feelings of friendship for her, but it's also because she's my wife. And I need to help and serve and come alongside and figure her out best you can. And same for her. She does a lot of things that are demonstrably loving to me. She doesn't like to do. You're all grown ups. You know the difference between liking somebody and loving somebody. We used to tell our children, I love you right now, but I sure don't like you. Right? And the same in a marriage. Sometimes you don't like each other. That doesn't mean you don't love that person. Love is not a feeling. Yes, we have loving feelings, as all the music tries to tell us. Why are there so many love songs? Because nobody can get it right. Love's ethical, love's a choice, love's enduring. Peter notes, fervently love one another. Did you read it? From the heart. If you love somebody and the feeling sustained it, he wouldn't have to tell us, love them fervently from the heart. You got to work it. <laughs> you got to change your attitude. And I can't just do it in the flesh. I need Christ to help me 
in the way I look at love. Loving God's family, loving other brethren is a command. But it's not just a command without application. He goes on to say, love covers a multitude of sins. I love this verse. We don't have a clue what it means. When I was a painter in college, I worked for a subcontractor. We painted houses and uh, wallpapered and finished cabinets and whatnot. And we would have to, you know, the, the trim carpenters would come in, the sheetrock guys, and they would use a pneumatic nail gun. We call it a stud finder because they, would, they wouldn't find the stuff. They'd just shoot nails in and they hit something, you know. That'd be 400 holes in a piece of shoe mold. You'd have to, you know, and it'd be flopping around. Well, you had to putty all those holes and caulk them. And my, the guy I worked for said, caulk covers a multitude of sins. Caught covers a multitude of sins because the piece of wood could be all beat up. It could have 100 holes in it. And with a good caulk and good putty and a couple of coats of primer and enamel, you would never see all the blemishes underneath there. Love covers a multitude of sins. What's he saying? Is he saying we just love and don't ask for forgiveness? When we love as Christ loves, we're forgiving as Christ forgives. When you love as Christ loves, you're forgiving as Christ forgave you. Marshall writes, one of the reasons we don't take these verses too seriously, he says, we think narrowly the terms of sin committed against us. And then it applies to all the things and other people that irk us. We tend to assume the biblical teaching is concerned only with formal forgiveness of wrongs that are committed. Doubtless that's included in the wider scope. But when Peter says here is more closely aligned to 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, how many, you married couples, how many hundreds of thousands of times have you offended your husband or your wife has, or you've, you've been offended or offended and you just don't bring it up? Now, did you ask for forgiveness and did you say, yes, I forgive you, I'm sorry, I did that, I'll never do that again? No, otherwise... You know, eight hours over a day, about six and a half would be doing that stuff, right? You hurt my feelings when you walked by and didn't say good morning. I mean, you could go, you could go ad nauseum on this nonsense, right? So because you love a person, you say, I love them. I'm not going to begrudge them because they can't read my mind still. It's fascinating. The arguments Cindy and I have are always on two subjects, directions in driving and parenting. Those are two, it's like third rail subjects. If we get in the car, I mean, and even with all this great technology, we argue about whose phone or GPS is right. Anybody do that besides Cindy and me? We're not perfect people, but you love each other. And you roll your eyes and she says, well, he's an idiot. He doesn't use the GPS. Okay, I'm an idiot. She's wrong. I'm an idiot. Love covers a multitude of sins. He continues, the practice of formal forgiveness has largely dropped out of our culture. People say sorry when they make a mistake. And we say, doesn't matter, or don't worry about it. We rarely say, I forgive you. Listen, what matters is that we should not hold other people's offenses against them, but should treat them with continuing love and care. And you know how you do that? You have to have compassion. That's what love is. Love is, I can't be mad at that person because they hurt my feelings. And, and true to form, how many times have we hurt someone or done something to it? We don't, don't even know we've done it. We're not playing, you know, a false pretense. We really don't know we've done it. And those are the kind of infractions. Well, after prayer, we have love, fervent love. And then third, we have, interestingly, hospitality, which ties in interestingly. A straightforward application. It's the most gracious thing you could do is to welcome somebody into your home with all their faults whom you have to forgive. If love's the primary generator here, then hospitality is going to follow. Now, think back in the context of the first century. There were no large meeting rooms. There were no large restaurants. There weren't churches Synagogues were off limits to the believer. So what did you do? You met in homes. Some people had little bigger homes than others, but in the first century, it's pretty much a you know equal world. If you had a really nice home, you might have a courtyard that was open in the first century. So hospitality wasn't necessarily you know slaying the fatted calf and bringing out the best wine and the best this and the best that. Hospitality was pretty simple. Sometimes we overthink Christianity. Um, 
Cindy and I, early in marriage, like probably everyone in this room from married, we were so stinking poor. I mean, we were terribly poor. And uh, we would have been these Bible studies in people's homes. And we would go to these people's homes. We'd, ooh, and ah, this big, beautiful home that we would never have. And I remember one very, I still see the evening because it was a physician and his wife. They were so sweet. They had a bunch of couples over. And we like walked in like, wow, look at this house, you know. They actually have furniture, you know. And, um, and we ate on solo cups and solo plates and paper napkins and plastic forks. And we drove home and we talked about, yeah, it was a pretty home, but that wasn't what was cool about the night. It was the interaction we had with other believers and we just had paper plates and um, plastic plates, and, and we had a great time. And it freed us up to think we have to have this certain thing to be able to host people in our home. And we had to learn how to be hospitable. I'm not just talking about people dining in your home. How about welcoming people whom sometimes are difficult? And this passage gets very applicable. It can be demanding, and Peter notes it without complaint. Did you see that? Hospitable without complaint. It's an interesting word. In the Greek, it's gongusmos. It's, I don't want to say onomatopoeia because it's not true, but think, do it without gongusmos. Gongusmos. Don't gongusmos. Don't, you know, don't grumble about this. Don't complain about this because human nature hasn't changed. Did you see how much food they took? Did you see what they said to their husband? Did you see their ill manner? That person chews with their mouth open. That person didn't wash their feet when they came in. Nothing's changed. Nothing has changed. So you're hospitable without complaining. The word gongusmus means utterance made in a low tone. So you ever, can you believe what Michael did when he came over to our house? Can you believe what he said? Can you believe that? That's grumbling. That's not being hospitable. Nothing's changed. Finally, using your gifts to serve one another, verses 10 and 11, each believer is endowed with a spiritual gift. Um, it's the word charisma that we are to employ, Peter's language, which is diakoneo. Charisma, diakoneo. Charisma is a grace gift God gives you. The moment you trusted Christ and Christ alone is your Savior, you were endowed with the person of the Holy Spirit. At that time, I believe, Scripture teaches, you were also endowed with a spiritual gift. Now, some of us grew up in, in churches. I was thinking this morning, uh, this is 45 years now, I guess I've been doing this, maybe 47 technically. And I don't know how many gift inventories I've taken and Sunday school classes on gifts assessment and read a book. I still remember Bill McRae's book on the spiritual gifts. It was a great little book in the 70s. And the one church I served in D.C., we had this spiritual gift class. It was four weeks. I mean, you know, we, we, it, these things cycle in and out. And then, of course, you've got to talk about signs and wonders, and it's sort of this open can of worms. Uh, the charisma, or charisma, uh, grace gift, charis being the word grace, diakoneo, serving. I love the way Peter puts them together. You were given a gift to serve. And this aligns with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, that most people who overemphasize the gifts miss. The gifts are given for the common good. For the common good. You're not given a gift for yourself. You're given a gift to serve other people. And it makes such great practical sense. Sometimes Christianity is a lot simpler than we make it. We're gifted to serve others. Now think about this in very pragmatic terms. Um, some of us know people that are very generous, very merciful, very leadership skills. They're very compassionate. Uh, so not everybody possesses all the gifts. So if you are sick or you, someone has surgery or someone has a diagnosis, there's somebody who's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I do something to help? And they're not doing that out of any other motivation than they're wired with a gift of mercy and compassion. They care. And they will go do things for you in a drop of a hat. You look at other assessment tools like the D and the I and the S and the C. D's like, oh, we'll, we'll help you out. Let us know. But they run a little low on compassion sometimes. And we can, we can look at all these matrices and make excuses for it. But rather than that, Peter is teaching us a very simple thing here, that you were given a gift to serve, diakoneo, the same where we get deacon from, which is a servant in the body of Christ. 
to illustrate a little further, um, early again, early in marriage, I remember people that were very generous with churches we were part of, or very generous with parachurch organizations. I had a friend when I was in seminary, and we were we were so poor in seminary. We didn't. We, you know, it, the, the truth of life is, you don't realize how how stupid you are doing things. If you did, you'd never do anything. But you do things on faith and on you know five bucks in the checking account, and that's you know God is kind and merciful. And we would do these things. Some of you have done these things, and you, and you get there and go, we, we don't know what we're doing. And I remember uh, a gentleman I talked to when I was in seminary, really struggling. Um, this is how poor we were. We hadn't borrowed money. We didn't have loans. I took a $500 simple interest loan for one semester that was due in 90 days. Did anybody give a simple interest loan anymore? A $500 simple interest loan, and I barely had a night's sleep for 90 days. I was mowing yards and trimming hedges and hanging wallpaper and giving money to Cindy going, do we have enough to pay the bill? And freaking out. And we never did that again in God's kindness. But it was so striking because I talked to a friend of mine who was very wealthy. And I said, I'm not asking you for money. I just don't know what else to do here. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Michael, your money problems and mine are exactly the same. It's just where the decimal point falls. I've never forgotten it. How do you use it? How do you use it? And he was generous, and he helped a lot of people. His generosity wasn't a check at that time. His generosity was good counsel about money. I've never forgotten it. And as we got older, and fortunately, I'm married to a wonderful woman who likes to give as much as I do. And I don't know that we have the gift of generosity, but we've sure become generous and open-handed because it's his anyway, and he's carried us for all these years. It's a way to serve his people, not just hoard. And there's great joy in that. I mean, if you don't understand it's better to give than receive, you haven't dialed into this yet. It truly is. When you got it, it's fun to give it. And it's fun to give it sometimes without people even knowing you gave it. Leadership, those who lead diligently, those who have mercy. The point is these gifts are to be serving the body, and then look what he turns up the heat as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And this fills in the wordplay, charisma, meaning the grace gift, the grace of God, the charis of God. You ever seen these, um, is it Savorsky, is that how you pronounce it, crystals, um, or different Waterford, I guess. And if you have one that's, cut and you hold up of course the prismatics are just uh, someone had brought me one from Austria years ago it's a big paperweight that I had for years someone stole it uh, but it was on my desk at one of my churches I served and um, I would pick it up and just look at it and it's, that's manifold it's manifold the colors and prisms and that's the word used in Greek colorful is what it literally means manifold means colorful the colorful grace of God so if the gifts are differentiated, some people have mercy and serving and loving, uh, uh, generosity and leading and teaching, whatever those gifts might be, those gifts are a manifold expression of the grace of God. It's a pretty cool picture. The charisma, the grace gift you were given for the common good is a stewardship of God's grace to the body of Christ. It's a big picture, cool picture. Two gifts are singled out in Peter's theology here. He puts them in two camps. Instead of a list like Paul would use, he just says speaking and serving, which is a pretty good uh, way to broad stroke them. Speaking of the power of words. Within the context of the church, those who use words of teaching and shepherding, within the context of ministry, when you're talking to another person, when you're discipling, speaking, he says, the utterances of God. That's another chilling part of this passage. James warns, not many of you become teachers because you will incur stricter judgment. That's pretty chilling. When I uh, hear other pastors, teachers speak sometimes, I don't just get upset because they're a little wonky. I get upset because I look at the audience that they're teaching this palaver to. And it scares me. And when I, every time I teach, I have an anxiety not because of spirit, speakers, whatever, that's not the problem. It's, am I telling these people what the Word says? That's why you often hear me use the phrase, seems to me. I can't be bulldogmatic. When I can, I will. But it's a terrifying thing to say, this is what God says, speaking. The second one is serving, 
And let me just say verbal and nonverbal, and there can be overlap, but I think it's a neat way Peter sews it together. It's the deeds, it's the doing, it's the action of. Certainly they can overlap. Uh, both are enabled by, notice what Peter says, the strength which God supplies. These are ineffective in the flesh. They're unimportant in the flesh. You can hear a fascinatingly powerful, motivating speaker who might give you the keys to whatever, and you might walk out the door and you may or may not apply it. But if God's word uh, through a, a failing human vessel is used, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. It's because it's his word. And that has got a lot more force in our lives. If a person does something out of altruism, if a, a neighbor mows your yard when you're on vacation, I appreciate that a lot. If a, a believer comes over and does the same thing and they do it without saying anything, it's like, wow. There is a difference between those who are doing this in the strength that God supplies and those who do it in the flesh. Finally, whether we speak or serve, the point is in all things, Peter writes, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the doxology, um, logia, the study of doxa, doctrine, straight, orthodoxy. You hear those words a lot. Um, here the emphasis is on the personal work of Christ. Most of the doxologies in our, in our Testament end a, a letter, and this is unusual to find it in the middle of, or two-thirds of the way through the letter, um, but he's just changing subjects. Uh, doc, uh, Paul will break out in doxologies three times, if memory serves, in Ephesians. Because of the subject he's writing on, he kind of goes, wow, and he writes the doxology. And that's what we have Peter doing here. But it's a nice bow on the subject. Because if you're going to use the charisma God gave you serving the church, you're manifesting as a steward of God's grace, wow, how that goes back to honoring Christ, not you, not a person. The Christian life is about Christ. That's the most obvious thing I'll say tonight, but we probably ought to write it down. The Christian life is about Christ. It's not about me. And that's hard to keep in mind. We clearly acknowledge people, men and women, who have gifting, people who teach us, people who lead us, people who serve, people who help, people who are generous to us, all the things that the Scripture tests. We honor one another, but the ultimate honor is that they're God's people, not a talented person. Billy Graham wrote, Our voices, our service, and our abilities are to be employed primarily for the glory of God. Couldn't say it better. Our voices, our service. And our abilities are to be employed primarily for the glory of God. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, Produced by Hannah Seymour and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.